meet Kim. She's 37 and lives in a high-rise in New York City. Kim has been feeling off for about a year and has not found an explanation from the many doctors that she's seen. Kim has been feeling foggy and tired and has been getting a lot more headaches. She's also getting joint pain that travels from her ankle to her shoulder to her knees and it seems to just come and go. She tried anti-inflammatories but didn't see much of a result. The headaches are sometimes so severe that she has to stay home from work and while migraine medicine helps reduce them a bit, it doesn't seem to be preventing them from coming. When I met Kim, she kept saying that she just didn't feel like herself and that she felt inflamed and so she came to me to help her reduce inflammation. Functional medicine nutrition approaches are wonderful for inflammation, but as I looked over her results, I wanted to get to the bottom of what created that inflammation in the first place so we could stop it from the root rather than just covering it up. My sense was that something infectious was going on and I knew we had to dig a little bit more to find the answers to this health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Kim and her recent fatigue, memory, headache, and joint issues that she was experiencing. Join me on the show today to talk more about Kim's case is Dr. Darren Ingalls. He's the author of The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease. He's a respected leader in natural medicine and with more than 28 years of experience and has been published extensively in the field. Dr. Ingalls specializes in chronic immune dysfunction as well as Lyme disease and autism. He uses diet, nutrients, herbs, homeopathy, and immunotherapy to help his patients achieve better health. Dr. Ingalls, I'm so excited to have you. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. And Dr. Ingalls, I'm looking forward to picking your brain myself about Lyme, which is one of your specialties, because this disease is so often misunderstood and underdiagnosed by conventional medicine. And I just think there's so much confusion surrounding it. And in Kim's case, you know, she has so many mysterious symptoms and, you know, Lyme is something that I suspect it could be going on. So can you tell us what is Lyme disease? Sure. Well, Lyme disease is actually a bacterial infection, much like, you know, strep throat's a bacterial infection and some types of meningitis and bronchitis and sinusitis. You know, it's just a different kind of bacteria. But Lyme is kind of a unique bacteria and it's unique in several ways. And primarily it's its shape. You know, a lot of bacteria are these kind of long rods or these short little balls. And uh, this is what's called a spirochete. So it's actually this corkscrew shaped organism. And that corkscrew shape actually allows it to penetrate into different parts of the body that other bacteria don't really have the capacity to do. So this is a a bacterial infection that we primarily get through the bite of a tick, and specifically a deer tick. And we can talk a little bit more later. I mean, there are other ways that people can potentially get Lyme, but most of the cases that we see out there are from a tick bite. So certainly people 
people who live in areas that are endemic with ticks. They are more at risk. However, we now know that Lyme has been reported in every state in the United States, including Alaska and Hawaii. So no matter where you live, you're not necessarily immune from being exposed. But, you know, for those who live in New England or the central part of the Midwest where there just happen to be more ticks, you know, the incidence certainly is a little bit higher. Higher. So, you know, if you get bit by, you know, these ticks that carry Lyme, you know, you can start to experience, you know, any number of different symptoms. And, you know, we actually call Lyme the great imitator, the great mimic, because it happens to look like a lot of other different infections. So this is where some of the confusion comes in about getting diagnosed, because you go to your doctor and you, you're tired and your joints hurt and you've got headaches. You know, it could be very easy to mistake it for flu or mono or, you know, any number of other different problems. So often, you know, people go through this litany of different tests and everything keeps coming back normal and your doctor sends you out the door and says, well, you're fine. And indeed, it could very well be, you know, that Lyme uh, is one of these underlying issues. So, you know, initially when people get exposed, you know, you can be very acutely ill. You know, you can get a fever, you can get chills, you can get joint pain, you can get a headache, you can get a thing called Bell's palsy where one of your face starts to droop, your lymph nodes can get swollen. Uh, one of the characteristics of Lyme that's actually very unique is a specific kind of skin rash called an erythema migrans rash. And what it looks like is a target or a bullseye. So you'll see these concentric rings of sort of clear, red, clear, red, clear, red. And it can do three, four, or five rings. And it's usually flat. It's not raised like a mosquito bite. And it doesn't tend to itch, at least initially. So these flat, non-itchy rashes that start to spread and look like a target, as far as we know, there's nothing else that causes that rash other than Lyme. So when you see that, that's a pretty uh, good dead giveaway that you've been exposed to Lyme. However, we know from the research that uh, probably less than 40% of the people who get exposed to Lyme actually get that rash. So, you know, when we see it, we're pretty confident that you've been exposed. But if you don't get the rash, it doesn't exclude the possibility of having Lyme. And then if you've had Lyme, you know, for a longer period of time and you didn't get kind of those acute warning signs, you know, we'll start to see it progress into other types of, you know, primarily neurological symptoms where people complain of brain fog, balance problems, coordination issues. You know, people say they're clumsy, they trip a lot, they drop objects. Uh, they can start having short-term memory problems. We can get that what they call migratory joint pain, where one day it's my right shoulder, the next day it's my left knee, and then my right ankle. Again, migratory joint pain, as far as we know, Lyme is really the only thing that causes that. There's a lot of other things that can cause arthritic symptoms, but that fact that it moves from joint to joint is kind of unique to Lyme. And then we can see muscle aches and sleep disturbances, and it can cause hormone problems, particularly with the thyroid. So developing an underactive thyroid after having been exposed to Lyme is not uncommon. And, and really, I mean, there's, there's about 100 different symptoms that are associated with Lyme. So we could probably spend the entire time just talking about that. <laughs> but, you know, I think, you know, for me, when I hear about these chronic persistent neurological symptoms and arthritic symptoms, you know, that combination certainly for me raises a red flag that, you know, Lyme should be on the radar and should probably be evaluated. What you're saying is so important, and that's exactly what I was thinking as well, because in Kim's case, what you're describing is what she was having. She was having memory issues. She was tired. She was having joint pain. It wasn't severe, but the fact that it traveled, you know, it was in one place, then it was somewhere else. And perhaps her doctor maybe didn't evaluate it completely because it wasn't that bad. She may not even have brought it up, but seeing that it traveled was definitely a sign. 
Right. And, you know, with Lyme disease, you know, there are gradations of it. So not every Lyme patient gets the same symptoms, nor gets it to the same degree. Some people have a very mild version. Some people are debilitated and in a wheelchair. So, you know, there's a lot of variation in how it expresses. And again, I, I think, again, this is what leads to some of the confusion with doctors is if you go in and you're, you're kind of the walking wounded, you know, you don't feel well, but you're still functioning. It's very easy to dismiss Lyme. And I think when, you know, doctors go to medical school, when they learn about Lyme disease, you know, they sort of learn about this textbook classic case of Lyme, you know, with headache, you know, fatigue, joint pain, 105 fever. I mean, I had Lyme disease myself and I had classic Lyme disease, so it was pretty easy to figure out. But, you know, that's really not the majority of cases out there. And again, it's not uncommon that people seek out help. Uh, they get various diagnostic tests and they keep coming back negative. And, you know, this is where, you know, unfortunately, I think uh, doctors and other healthcare providers really need to be a bit more aware on the different manifestations of Lyme and, you know, what to look out for because it's just very commonly overlooked. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately it is. And especially, like you said, since only about 40% of people actually get that bullseye rash, they're not going to recognize that that could be going on. Well, you know, and, and in Kim's case, I think it's interesting, you know, being someone who lives in New York City, and again, I used to have a practice in Manhattan, and, you know, people say, well, I live in New York. I mean, you know, we're in a concrete jungle, you know, where on earth could I possibly get exposed? And, you know, again, we talk about the deer tick being, you know, one of the biggest vectors that transmits Lyme. Well, you know, the name might make you think that deer are the way that people get exposed. And ironically, they're not. I mean, deer tend to be kind of the reservoirs that they harbor the Lyme. Strangely, deer don't get Lyme disease. Uh, they just harbor the bacteria and then a tick bites them. But we now find that rodents are actually the biggest uh, vectors for transmitting Lyme. So it's the mice and the rats and, you know, squirrels and all those furry little creatures. And, I mean, last time I was in New York City on the subway, I think I saw my fair share of rats. So, oh, you know, yes. New York City is not short on those. <laughs> yeah. And there's this big green patch in the center of New York called Central Park. And there are plenty of furry little creatures in and around there. And I think a lot of, you know, New York particularly if you live in that part of Manhattan, do spend a fair amount of time walking in and around the park and sitting on the grass. So, you know, again, you know, you don't necessarily have to be on the middle of the woods hiking to get exposed. And even in some place like Manhattan, you know, there's the possibility of you know, having that, that exposure. So again, I think it's just awareness that, uh, you know, when you're spending a lot of time outdoors, I mean, I, I guess I'm at a point where I take a very conservative approach and no matter where you live, if you spend a lot of time outdoors and particularly if you like to go hiking and camping and fishing where your exposure might be a bit higher. You just have to be very diligent about protecting yourself and do tick checks at the end of the day and just make sure you haven't, you know, got a little critter on you. Kim actually doesn't really like to go hiking or camping, but living in New York City, <laughs> going to Central Park, I mean, it's like the oasis of the city. So she definitely spends a good amount of time there. Uh, and yeah, Dr. Ingalls, oh, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, I just said, I, I, I was always surprised when I was in Manhattan, how many, you know, New Yorkers who, and again, a lot of Manhattan people do, you know, they go out to Long Island, they go upstate New York, they often go to areas outside of Manhattan where their exposure could be even greater. But even for the people who really don't leave the concrete jungle, I would still people, see people who had Lyme disease. And as far as we know, their exposure occurred in the city itself. So again, you know, I don't think uh, anyone's necessarily immune just because you live in an area that you don't think you might have a lot of exposure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a really, really important point that I want everyone listening to really hear that it is possible to get it even in the city. Dr. Ingalls, what about mosquitoes? Can they carry Lyme? 
So, you know, it's interesting. There's a, a couple studies out of Europe primarily that have looked at mosquitoes and they found in the mosquitoes, they did find the, the Borrelia, they did find the Lyme organism. They've also found it in fleas and there's a suggestion even other biting insects like horseflies may carry it. You know, this is an area that is so grossly under-researched. You know, when you look at the fact that the, the mosquito carries the organism, do, do mosquitoes transmit Lyme disease? Now, I think there's at least one animal study where they were able to uh, take mosquitoes that had Lyme, infect, you know, uninfected mice. And when the mosquito bought the, bit the mouse, that, you know, it was able to transmit it. So my opinion is that I think other biting insects do have the capacity to transmit Lyme. But in all fairness, you know, this is an area that really has not been well researched. It's just clinically, I see so many people who get Lyme disease that as far as we can tell, didn't have any exposure to a tick. Now, again, it's possible it occurred and they didn't know about it and we didn't know about it. But I've seen people who live in Florida, you know, that has a lot of mosquitoes and not nearly as many ticks. So, you know, did they get it through a mosquito? Did they get it somewhere else? It's hard to know. And I think, you know, as we're learning more about Lyme transmission, we're finding it's extending, you know, potentially beyond, you know, insect bites. There's a question now about whether it's passed from mom to baby when she's pregnant. And actually now I think we've had a few studies that have shown that that occurs. So I think that's, that part has been settled a bit. But whether it's sexually transmitted, whether it's transmitted through other means, you know, again, they just really haven't done a lot of research. But, uh, you know, we've now found it in the semen of men. We found it in the vaginal secretions of women. We found it in breast milk of pregnant moms or of, you know, nursing moms. So, you know, the fact that we're finding it in these other body fluids suggests that potentially uh, it could be transmitted through other means. But uh, again, they really have not invested a lot of time or money into researching this. Yeah, that's just amazing to hear that you're finding it in all of these places. And obviously, more time is needed for research for this. But to your point, though, there's so many people that you see and I see as well that say that they've never saw a tick. And again, they could have missed it, like you said, but at the same yeah. time, it would be kind of a strange coincidence that all of those people just happen to never see a tick. There's got to be these other exposures. Uh, Dr. Ingalls, what about testing for Lyme? How do we accurately test for it? And why are so many tests not that reliable? Well, the CDC recommendation for testing is a two-tier method. So you go in, you get your blood drawn, they do an initial test, which is a Lyme screening test, and it's a simple antibody test. So it just looks to see if you've made antibodies to the Lyme organism. And if that test comes back positive, it then flexes over to another test called a Western blot, which is a more specific test that actually tests for a lot more different antibodies related to Lyme. And then if that test comes back positive, they say, okay, well, you've, you've been exposed to Lyme. And I think people need to understand that anytime you do an antibody test, you know, an antibody test is really just telling you you've had exposure. It doesn't tell you you have Lyme disease. You know, Lyme disease is a clinical diagnosis. And what that means, it's really based on your collection of symptoms. And ironically, if you go to the CDC's website and you read about Lyme disease, it says right there on the website that Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. Yet so, so many practitioners have put complete stock into diagnosing Lyme through the test alone. And that test was never, ever designed to be diagnostic. It was actually designed to be a surveillance tool for people who had known Lyme disease. You know, they wanted to be able to monitor them to see how their treatment was going. And, you know, 40 years of, you know, learning about Lyme, we've now understood that this test is not a reliable way to monitor treatment at all. In fact, once you get exposed to Lyme, antibody levels can start 
stay elevated for 20 years after you've been treated. So uh, definitely not a reliable marker to see how people are doing with whatever treatment they've been instituting. You know, the other thing we've learned about this test is especially that initial line screen test is that it's a very poorly sensitive test. And what that means is that you want any lab test, if you actually have the disease, to pick it up so that when you get a positive, you know with confidence that it's actually positive. So with any lab test out there, it should be at least 95% sensitive, which means it's going to pick up 95% of people who actually have the disease. Well, what we know from the research on the Lyme screen test is that it's somewhere uh, in the 40 percentile uh, sensitive. And depending on which study you read, it's somewhere between about 43 and just under 50%. Wow. So if you have a Lyme screening test that literally doesn't even pick up half the people who have the disease, you know, that's a really bad test. Yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of us in the Lyme world have just learned, you know, we just skip that test completely because it doesn't give us reliable information. And, uh, you know, we kind of go to other labs that perhaps you have a more sensitive test kit that they use, uh, or they have a slightly different way of interpreting it. And again, in 40 years of research of, and understanding Lyme, we've never, ever changed that criteria. And we've learned that some of these antibodies your body makes are very specific to Lyme, and some of these antibodies are not specific to Lyme. So why we've never really focused on just the Lyme-specific antibodies and kind of, you know, not ignored, but, you know, not put as much stock into these other antibodies, I don't really know. But I mean, I've had, you know, I can't even tell you hundreds of patients over the years that have gone to their doctor, you know, their test, you know, came back negative, even though they might have had one or two Lyme specific antibodies. And they said, well, you're not, your test isn't CDC positive, therefore you can't have Lyme. Or I've even had patients who have a positive Lyme test, and then their doctor tells them it's a false positive. So, you know, it, it becomes a lose-lose situation in many cases with practitioners because, again, they just don't really understand the testing. And my background, I was a microbiologist before I was a doctor. I actually used to do this test for a living, so I, I ran thousands of these tests. And, uh, you know, false positives with these tests are actually very rare. There's not a lot of cross-reactivity with other organisms like you might find with other antibody tests. So when you've got a positive, there's a pretty good chance that you've been exposed. And particularly we see uh, these very specific antibodies to Lyme. I mean, in, in my mind, the way I think of it, you know, it's kind of like being a little pregnant. I mean, you are or you aren't. So if you've got a Lyme-specific antibody, it doesn't matter if it's one, two, three, four, or five. You know, it does certainly suggest you had exposure. Now, the caveat to this is that you could have been exposed and never gotten symptoms. So if I test everybody out there in the United States, I would find a lot of people that show uh, a positive test and they have no clinical symptoms. So theoretically, if you get bit by a tick that carries Lyme and your immune system does what we want it to do, it reacts right away. It eliminates the organism before it ever gets to a point where you start to become symptomatic. But because your immune system responded, you're going to see these antibodies in your blood. And that's why I said, you know, you can't just use the blood test alone to say you do or do not have Lyme disease. You really have to put it in context with your clinical symptoms. But again, you know, when you've got a positive test and you've got a lot of the clinical symptoms and you've kind of ruled out other possibilities, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's mm -hmm. probably a duck. Right. So I think, you know, you, you have to use a little bit of common sense. And I think sometimes doctors kind of forget that. And when people have clinical symptoms and their tests, you know, suggest they've had exposure, you know, it's pretty easy to put two and two together. And I'm happy to hear you say that if, if someone is exposed, that 
your immune system can fight it so that people know that it doesn't mean that if you're exposed, that's it. It's the end of the world. Your immune system can fight it if you do the right things. So it's just a good point there. Now, I also wanted to ask you in terms of other tests, you know, as you were mentioning, these antibody tests seem to be only about 43 to 50%. And so it could miss a lot of people. So are there any more functional medicine type of tests that you use or other labs that are more specific and maybe look at more markers? Yeah, it's really, I think, about the lab. You know, a lot of the labs are doing similar kind of testing that a big reference lab would use. Uh, I think the difference is they use a different test kit that has a different sensitivity and specificity, or sometimes they're looking for different markers altogether. So, you know, I use a lab out of New Jersey called Medical Diagnostic Labs. I like them because I think they do better testing than most conventional reference labs. I also like it because they send me a copy of the Lyme Western blot, which is that sort of second test that's done. And again, being a former microbiologist, I know how to read these. I know how to look at them. So I like to be able to look at it myself and see which antibodies are present. So something like someone like MDL, they're really good at Lyme testing. They also do a lot of the co-infection testing. So we know that a lot of ticks that carry Lyme can also carry other types of infections, you know, things like Bartonella, Babesia, Anaplasma. There are several other bacteria and viruses that can be carried in these ticks as well. So we typically test for the whole gamut of everything. Uh, but MDL is a great lab. There's a lab called IGENEX in Palo Alto, California. They do really good testing. Their Lyme testing is a little bit different because their Lyme testing includes different strains of the Lyme organism. You know, we know that there's upwards of 300 strains of Lyme worldwide, maybe about 100 strains in the U.S. We don't even know how many are actually clinically relevant. But, you know, we first discovered the organism was called Borrelia burgdorferi back in Lyme, Connecticut in the early 80s. And since then, we've now learned, again, there are just several other strains, even in the U.S., that can cause Lymes. But the test out there really only tests for Borrelia burgdorferi. So the, the advantage of IgenX is that they're actually looking at a broader a scope of Borrelia species. There's another new lab that I'm actually on the scientific advisory board for that uh, came out about two years ago called Global Lyme Diagnostics, and they're in North Carolina. Uh, I really like them as a screening test. Because, again, they test for all the different strains of Borrelia. The doctor that developed that test was a vaccinologist that was actually trying to develop a Lyme vaccine for dogs. I'm not sure he ever did that, but he did discover there was a specific part of the Lyme organism that was unique to all the Lyme strains. So in that test, you know, regardless of what strain you may have been exposed to, there's a really good chance of picking it up with that test. So I think that's one of the better Lyme screening tests out there. And then there's a lab that's really interesting called Armin Labs. They're out of Germany, actually. Their test is unique in that they're not looking at antibodies at all. They're actually looking at uh, what are called cytokines. And cytokines are chemical mediators in the immune system that basically alert the rest of your immune system that there's a problem. So for people who might be immune deficient or, you know, just don't make a good antibody response, their body will probably still secrete these cytokines. So it gets away from any kind of issues we might run into when we're measuring antibodies. It's looking at a different aspect of the immune system. Uh, so again, for someone who might be very early in Lyme, uh, where their body hasn't made antibodies yet, this test would be very appropriate. Or as a way, again, of kind of monitoring treatment, you know, I think, you know, measuring cytokine levels is probably a bit more reflective of what's actually going on with the immune system, where again, as I mentioned, you know, antibody levels can take up to 20 years to really change. So those aren't very reliable. So, you know, there, there's a handful of other labs out there. Again, I think anyone who's working in the Lyme world is pretty savvy on knowing the difference between the labs and, you know, what kind of information you're trying to gain from it. 
But uh, definitely, if you're ever suspicious, uh, I would work with someone who knows how to use these labs versus just using the -the run-of-the-mill lab. I mean, look, if you use your local reference lab and you have a positive test, then you know and you can start treatment. But if your test comes back negative through, you know, Quest or LabCorp, one of the common labs, uh, and you still have symptoms and you're not sure, I think it's definitely worth using one of these other uh, Lyme-specific labs to get better information. Yeah, that's a great point. And also what you were mentioning about antibodies, you said that sometimes it's too early. So how early is too early to test or does that vary from person to person? Well, it does vary. You know, immune responses can change. You know, typically we expect to see antibody responses probably somewhere within about a month's time. Um, there are probably some people who take longer for them to really start eliciting an antibody response. So, um, you know, typically if someone comes in and they, they pull the tick off their body yesterday, I'd say, you know, let's wait three or four weeks before even doing the antibody test to, you know, give your body an opportunity to actually make those antibodies. You know, if someone has a tick on them and we know it's a deer tick, and we hopefully they saved it. We will actually send the tick off to be tested to find out if the tick's carrying anything. And then again, I'm on the conservative side where we presumptively start treating until proven otherwise. And if we find the tick is negative and they don't develop symptoms, great, fine, we'll stop treatment. But we do know that the earlier you start treatment, the better chance you have of recovery. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't realize that you can actually test the tick. So I'm so glad you're mentioning that. And for everyone listening, if you ever do find a tick on you, please don't throw it away. Save it. There's labs where you can send that tick because like Dr. Engel said, if the tick doesn't have anything and then you don't develop symptoms, chances are there's nothing to worry about in those cases. Yeah, I think, again, it just gives us better information about what your exposure may have been. Again, I've had patients know who had the tick tested, the tick looked negative. They did develop symptoms later on. So again, it's not perfect, but I think it at least gives us a little bit better information to work off of. And sometimes just a little bit of peace of mind that if you you test the tick and everything comes back negative, I think, you know, the likelihood of having had transmission is probably at least less. And if someone does find a tick on them, is there a proper way of removing the tick? Yes, definitely. So the best way to do it is I recommend that anyone, you know, who's in a tick area is invest in a set of, you know, really fine tweezers with a nice fine point. And they actually do make tweezers that are very specific for removing ticks. And at the end of the tweezers, there's a little magnifying glass because these ticks are so tiny, they're really hard to see with the naked eye. So the magnifying glass just makes it a little easier for you to uh, grab the tick. So you want to Try and get the tweezers, you know, as close to the skin. You want to grab the tick by its head and you want to pull gently just straight out of the skin. And you might feel some resistance. I mean, when ticks bite you, I mean, they really kind of dig in. So just keep pulling slowly, gently, and eventually you'll be able to work the tick out of the skin. You don't want to yank it or tug it. You don't really have to pull super hard. Otherwise, what you'll basically do is rip the tick in half. So just take your time with it and you can kind of twist it just a little bit to work it out. And usually you can get the tick out in whole. If for some reason the tick does break, you can save the tick bits of whatever you do have, you know, in a little Ziploc baggie and just put a damp cotton ball in there to keep it from drying out. And then you can try and use your tweezers to pull any residual pieces of the tick out. If it's really deeply embedded in the skin, I don't recommend going in and digging Uh, trying to dig deeper in the skin, uh, at that point, it's probably not going to be very helpful. Um, So at that point, you can put just a little bit of alcohol on the skin, clean it really well with, you know, some sort of, you know, antimicrobial uh, soap. And again, save the tick bits, send it off to be tested. 
it just takes a little bit of patience to kind of work through it. Again, sometimes it can take a handful of minutes to really get that tick out. But it's also about what not to do. And this old thought of, you know, dumping a chemical on it. I mean, I can remember, you know, people saying, you know, dump turpentine or gasoline on it oh, wow. <laughs> or put, put, put Vaseline and other things. So you really don't want to dump any chemical on it. You know, that might actually cause the tick to inject more of its saliva into your skin and potentially transmit more stuff. Um, so. Uh, there was one study that came out last year showing that I think if you dump peppermint oil, that that would actually cause the tick to retract and pull out. Again, that was one study. Um, I'd rather you just get some tweezers and pull it out directly. So don't burn it off with, you know, a match. Don't use a chemical. You know, just get some nice tweezers and just pull it out gently. And that's really the safest, easiest way to remove the tick. That's great information. Thank you for that. Now, if... The tick has been in for, say, 10 hours you know, before you noticed it versus literally just a few minutes when you notice it. Does that matter? Is there less transmission, the less time it has been on you? Well, you know, that's been really controversial. You know, back in the old days, they used to say it had to be something like 48 to 72 hours. And then they said, well, no, it's 24 hours and then it's 16 hours. You know, I think in reality, we don't really know how long that tick needs to be attached for that transmission to occur. My guess is it's probably faster than we think. I think, you know, once that tick has the capacity to start sharing that blood meal and it injects its saliva into you, you know, your risk goes up from there. And we also know that, you know, with the tick bite that aside from Lyme, other organisms can be transmitted very quickly. So even if it's not Lyme, you know, Bartonella and Babesia, you know, can be a matter of minutes after that tick's been attached. And the problem is, is that once people find the tick on their skin, they have no idea necessarily when it actually attached. So, you know, I don't know of anyone who's ever seen the tick crawl on them, bite them, and then watched it for a while to see how long it was there. <laughs> you know, it, just, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. So by the time, you know, you're able to find that tick on you, you, know, you can probably get a relative idea just based on the size of the tick. You know, the more engorged the tick is, the longer, obviously, it's been attached to you. You know, if you see these little, you know, nymph ticks that are teeny weeny tiny that aren't engorged, you know, you can probably assume it hasn't been attached very long if it's stuck to your skin. And I've had people, you know, call me and say, look, I found a tick crawling on my skin. They were able to pull it out very easily, which tells you it really wasn't attached. And you don't have to really, you know, take the tick off, obviously. But in terms of testing and treatment, you know, you, if it's not attached to you, because once a, titch, a tick gets attached to you, when it's done, it will naturally fall off. It's not going to keep hanging out on your skin once it's engorged. So when you see a non-engorged tick just walking on your skin, you can pull it off safely and, and you're fine. But, you know, even a small tick, uh, if you pull it out and it is attached, um, again, you know, I think it's really hard to know what the timing is. So, you know, I, I recommend that people go online and kind of get familiar with the difference between what a deer tick looks like, because sometimes you're bit by a tick and it's not a deer tick. It's a dog tick. It's a wood tick. There are other different species of ticks out there and they don't all necessarily carry Lyme. So uh, it's good sometimes to know what kind of tick you've been exposed to. Mm -hmm, right. And we'll post some pictures of these in the show notes for all of you guys to see. Now, I wanted to also ask you about insurance. With some of the other tests that you uh, were speaking about, like Igenix and the one in New Jersey, do they take insurance or is it something people have to pay out of pocket? So the lab in New Jersey, MDL, does bill insurance. Uh, that's part of the reason I like them is that they uh, I think they do good quality testing and they'll bill insurance. So, again, it's just another expense that people don't have to fork out of their own pocket. Igenex, uh, as of now, they bill Medicare, but they do not bill other 
uh, at least they're not contracted with other insurance companies. I have recently heard that IGNX will now bill your insurance company, but you still basically have to pay the bill. So you might get some out-of-network reimbursement with them depending on your insurance plan. But by and large, you know, we still consider IGNX a cash practice unless you have Medicare. Mm-hmm. Uh, Global Lyme Diagnostics uh, is not contracted with any insurance company. Their test is, I think, is $295 now uh, for their Lyme screen, and that's a cash pay. Uh, Armin Labs is also a cash pay, and off the top of my head, I forget what the cost of that. It really depends on how many tests you order. Mm-hmm. I think their Lyme test is in and around $300, $350 or something okay. like that. So MDL is really the only lab I know of that reliably bills insurance. The other labs are generally cash pay, and then again, you can submit your bill out of network, and you may get some reimbursement on the back end. Now, if someone does have a positive test and they know that Lyme is present, how is Lyme typically treated, and are there any natural approaches to it? Well, the CDC recommendation for treatment is 10 to 21 days of antibiotics, and typically it's doxycycline unless you're allergic to it. Otherwise, you can use amoxicillin uh, or other you know, variations of antibiotics. And you know, they kind of stick to that 10 to 21-day rule. Uh, I think the Infectious Disease Society of America has the opinion that you know, Lyme is pretty easily treated, and if you just do you know, two to three weeks of antibiotics, you're fine. But you'll find in the real world that there's a lot of people who do that. And after those two or three weeks, they're not fine. They're not better. And, you know, in fact, these doctors say, well, you know, you did your treatment, you're done. And uh, for those of us in the Lyme world who are not in that camp, uh, we tend to do much longer courses of treatment. So, you know, even for someone who's got acute Lyme or acute exposure, if you're going to do antibiotics, it's probably no less than six weeks. And the reason it ends up being so long is that Lyme is a very slow-growing organism. If you consider that most bacteria in your body replicate about every 20 minutes, a Lyme, if you look at the research, replicates every 1 to 16 days. So that's incredibly slow. And, you know, you may have heard of, you know, people, if they get exposed to tuberculosis, they go on antibiotics for six months to a year, and it's three different antibiotics. It's a very heavy-duty regimen. And tuberculosis is one of the slowest-growing bacteria out there, if not the slowest-growing. So, you know, the nature in which an organism replicates kind of dictates how long the treatment needs to happen. And again, this is part of why I've never understood the 10 to 21 day antibiotics, knowing that Lyme is an incredibly slow growing organism. You know, why wouldn't you extend that further? Because something like doxycycline, I don't think a lot of people realize doxycycline doesn't really kill anything. Doxycycline is what's called a bacteriostatic uh, antibiotic. So what it does is it stops the organism from replicating, but it doesn't necessarily kill it, at least not very much of it. You know, something like amoxicillin actually is bactericidal. It will actually kill the organism directly because it breaks up the, the cell wall of the organism. So, you know, when you're on an antibiotic that's job is really just to stop replication, clearly it's only going to work when the organism's replicating. So you can imagine if you're on, uh, you were prescribed a 10-day course of doxycycline and the organism replicates every 16 days, you literally haven't even been through one life cycle of the organism. Wow. So why would you expect that to be beneficial? Yeah. So, you know, again, this is, you know, part of the, uh, the controversy in Lyme treatment. But, you know, again, the CDC recommendations, 10 to 21 days of antibiotics. And then for someone who has evidence of Lyme in their brain, there is a recommendation for IV rocephin, uh, again, for the same time period. But, you know, those of us who've been treating Lyme that are said not part of that camp, uh, we'll definitely use longer courses of treatment. And, you know, I think for acute Lyme disease, antibiotics you know, are very appropriate. 
they can help get over the hump. Again, if you catch it early, I think where we get into even more controversy is when we start moving into chronic Lyme yeah. about, you know, really what is the best way to approach it. Right, right. Yeah, because some of those people could have had it for years potentially. And, you know, it's hard to know how much of the infection is actually in there. So are there any natural approaches to that if someone has chronic Lyme? Well, yeah, fortunately, there are a lot of natural approaches. And, you know, again, been someone who had Lyme disease and dealt with it for, you know, many, many years and, and tried a lot of different things myself. You know, I was someone who had acute Lyme disease. I went on antibiotics. And actually, after four days, I felt great. I was fine. Uh, I Strangely, I got bit about three weeks before I was set to open my own practice. Wow. Yeah. Talk about timing. Yeah. And when I opened- and did you get the bullseye? I'm curious. I did. I had, uh, so I uh, started developing joint pain. I felt like my back was broken. I had 105 fever and I had meningitis when I was in college. So I thought I had meningitis again and I was actually getting ready to go to the hospital and I was changing clothes and someone I was with noticed that I had a big bullseye on the back of my leg. Uh, because it was behind me, I couldn't see it. I didn't know. So mm. after I saw that, and you know, I pulled out the double mirror thing and saw the big bullseye, I'm like, well, we can skip the hospital. I know what this is. So I went to the walk-in clinic and you know, said, I have Lyme disease. And the nurse there looks at me like, well, how do you know you have Lyme disease? And I showed her the bullseye and she's like, okay, yeah, you have Lyme disease. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, I, I started on doxycycline and I said within four days, I felt great. But you know, when I opened my practice and I was really doing... How long did you take the doxycycline? Sorry, I just wanted to find out. Yeah, I took it for 21 days. Uh-huh. So even though I felt better after about day four or five, I went ahead and finished the entire course because I knew that's what you were supposed to do. And um, when I started my practice, again, I was just doing everything. So I worked very long hours and I wasn't sleeping well and eating well and everything else and being a, a new business owner. And after about eight months, which was now the dead of winter, it was February uh, in Connecticut. So it was cold and snowy. And I started to relapse. I started getting joint pain again. I started getting numbness and tingling in my hands. And I knew it was a relapse of Lyme. And I went back on antibiotics and it didn't do anything. Wow. So I said, okay, well, I'll change antibiotics. So I changed antibiotics and it didn't do anything. And then I started working with a local Lyme doctor that I knew and she had recommended different antibiotic regimens. And so I went through nine months of changing antibiotic regimens and actually got a lot worse. Wow. You know, my gut, gut was a mess. And I was losing weight and my sleep was worse. I just, I felt horrible. I was tired. Uh, so I was fortunate to have found a doctor in New York City who's a Chinese medical doctor, and he started treating me with Chinese herbs. And I started acupuncture, and it was really uh, and within three weeks I was you know eighty eighty five percent improved. Amazing. So for me, it was kind of my wake up call that I needed to come back to my naturopathic roots and really examine you know what was I doing. And of course, now years later, knowing more now than I did then, realizing how damaging the antibiotics had had been affecting me. You know, it can damage your mitochondria, which are the little parts of your cell that literally create energy. Uh, it was damaging my gut ecology, and that was causing a lot of the inflammation and problems there. So, you know, when you look at the research on long-term use of antibiotics for chronic Lyme, you know, most of the studies are not very favorable. And they seem to suggest that, you know, if you get any benefit, it's really only while you're on the antibiotics, or you get no benefit at all. And I think, you know, we need to reframe our thought process with chronic Lyme and that it's really just not about killing the bug. 
you know, this organism has the capacity to cause so many different changes in your body after you've had exposure. You know, we know from the research, it can really trigger this autoimmune reaction. And I think that's what a lot of people with chronic Lyme are really experiencing is it's not the infection per se, but really the sort of abnormal immune response to the organism that's affecting their brain and their joints and their gut. And that's why if you focus on killing the bug alone, uh, you're probably not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. So in terms of a natural approach, you know, it's really really a comprehensive approach that includes, yes, we do use some herbs to help, you know, keep the load of the microbe down. You know, we, we don't know when you get exposed to Lyme if you ever completely eradicate it. Again, I'm of the opinion that you don't. I think it's kind of like when you get chicken pox when you're five years old, you can get shingles when you're 55. It's the same virus that's been in your body for 50 years. So I think, you know, Borrelia is one of these organisms that when you get exposed, it becomes part of you. So it's really about how do we change the way that our immune system responds to it. And I think, you know, it becomes opportunistic, you know, when the terrain just isn't the way it should be. So it's really about fixing the terrain, you know, and that's where we look at, you know, gut health and diet and lifestyle patterns, sleep and exercise. And so, you know, treating the bug is really a small part of the overarching goal of, you know, how do we help the whole person heal? And again, as I think we improve the, uh, the nature of the terrain, that the body is able to, you know, get over the hump of Lyme. Yeah, I love what you're saying, because I think is with so many different health mysteries, so to speak, it really is about looking at the whole body. And that's why, you know, I think what you're saying is just so important, because it's not how, like you said, your body is, it's not the bug itself, but it's the inflammation that's created, and it's the immune response that's created. And for most things that we're dealing with, there is some type of an inflammatory response or potentially an immune response. So it is looking at the whole body and kind of looking at, I always talk about the uh, overflowing bucket analogy. And so we just exactly. have to go in the bucket and see, all right, is the gut off? Are the adrenals off? And but even a lot of the mind-body stuff and the lifestyle stuff, like you said, sleep, exercise, I mean, these are all things that are going to help. And it's, it's so good to hear this too, because I think that for those that know a little bit about Lyme, when they think about it, they think, oh no, Lyme, that's just like this really bad thing and you have to be on antibiotics forever. And it's just not necessarily the case. And doing some of these other things like you're mentioning can be so effective and is so effective. And I know that's something that has helped you in your recovery. Yeah. And, you know, for the people out there who've done antibiotics and they felt clinically better, I mean, great. If that's what worked for you, that's awesome. I mean, I'm all for what works. I think in my practice, what I find more often are people who come to see me, you know, they've been down that path and they didn't respond well, or they start having a lot of side effects from the antibiotics. And it just, at some point they had to discontinue the treatment. So, you know, it, it's really, again, a, a different perspective, but Again, my clinical experience has been that, you know, we tend to get people better without all the adverse side effects. You know, people sometimes when they're on antibiotics, they get these terrible Herxheimer reactions, which for people who don't know that, it's a die-off reaction. So as the organism's dying, it, it basically creates this these flu-like symptoms. So you're more tired and more headaches and more body aches and, you know, more sleep problems. And it tends to be transient, but sometimes it can go on for an extended period of time. And it really just makes people feel miserable. And so these die-off reactions when you're undergoing treatment sometimes is worse than the disease itself. 
So if there's a way that we can help people move through their treatment without experiencing it, that's certainly my preference. And again, I've uh, been using herbs now for you know going on 20 years of you know treating Lyme disease and find that they're very effective at dealing with Lyme. But you know we get a lot of other benefits of herbs. You know they're anti-inflammatory and they help promote circulation and they help boost your immune system. So we get a lot of these added benefits that you know antibiotics are really just there to kill the bug. And herbs, you know, do so much more with, you know, least side effects, and they just generally tend to be tolerated better. So, you know, I, I've had numerous discussions with my colleagues over the years, and there are some that feel like if you're not using antibiotics, that you're not really treating Lyme. And I just think that's um, an ignorant statement for someone who really doesn't understand herbs very well. You know, if we have some patients, we put them on one drop of, you know, one herbal tincture and they start to feel like they're getting a die off reaction. So, you know, some of these plants are very potent and it can affect people in a very profound way. Mm -hmm. So for people who are, you know, interested in pursuing that path, I definitely recommend getting the hands of someone who knows herbal medicine well, because you can definitely get a lot of benefit from it. Yeah. And like you said, everyone is so different. So the dosages are going to be different. And I'm assuming the time frame for treatment is probably going to be very different too, right? Right. I mean, you know, again, everyone's Lyme is different. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of general guidelines that we use for people, but in terms of the timing, the dose, you know, you just have to find what works well. I mean, I kind of come from the perspective of start small and work your way up. I want to make sure people tolerate things first. It's very easy to go in and throw a thousand things at people and it just becomes overwhelming. And then we're not sure what's actually helping. So it's better just to start small. You know, you can layer things in as you feel like you need it. But with herbs, definitely, if it's chronic, uh, I like to generally start at lower doses and then kind of work our way up as we feel like people are tolerating. And again, you'll find sometimes that even very low doses of herbs can be beneficial or nutrients or whatever you're using. So, you know, even, even though someone may have been symptomatic for 20 years, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go in with a sledgehammer and start, you know, just whacking away at it. You can, you know, take your time and, you know, start slow find out what people tolerate, find out how they respond, and then, you know, change your treatment strategy appropriately. And is it something that they're always going to be treating? Or do you find that after a couple of months or maybe a couple of years, um, they're able to go into, I guess, quote unquote, remission? Yeah, I mean, you know, my experience is that, you know, six months to a year is pretty normal uh, for people to be in treatment. I, I have one patient I saw who came from Arizona, and again, in an area we don't typically think of Lyme, and she's born and raised Arizonian, mm -hmm. um, so we're not sure where her exposure occurred, but she had actually a CDC positive Lyme test, and she was very symptomatic, and I started her on, you know, I made some diet changes, we worked on her gut, she took some herbs, and she called me within three weeks, and she's like, I am, my symptoms are all gone completely. Wow. And I had her stay on herbs for another six weeks just to kind of make sure. And she came off and it's now been, gosh, I think maybe about a year or so. And she's been perfectly fine. So <laughs> every now and then, you know, we get those cases that people respond very quickly to treatment and they don't necessarily need it longer term. But I think, you know, with the majority of the patients I work with, you know, six months to a year is normal. Sometimes it's less. Sometimes it's more. I think the important thing to keep in mind, and no matter who you're working with, no matter what your treatment is, is that are you seeing progress? And what uh, kind of bothers me is when I see people who've been doing the same thing for months and there's just no clinical improvement at all, you know, it just tells me that whatever you're doing isn't really the right thing for you. So don't be afraid, you know, if you start down one path and you're not getting the results you want to change to something else. I mean, there's really a lot of ways to deal with it. And, um, you know, your practitioner probably has a lot of ideas of, you know, what to do next. 
But I know, in, at least in my practice, I lay out, you know, when we're starting any kind of treatment, this is the expectation so that you know that I'm okay in two months, I want to see, you know, X amount of improvement. If we don't see an improvement, we're going to ditch it. We're going to move on to the next thing. So, you know, again, as a patient, I think it's just important to be your best advocate for yourself and make sure you have a clear picture on, you know, what the goal is for any treatment that you're doing so that you're not, you know, spending a lot of time and money on something that really isn't being very productive for you. Absolutely. And you just want to make sure that your practitioner is listening to you. And, you know, because sometimes if they're saying, no, no, it's fine, it's supposed to be this way. And if it's two or three months down the line, and you're not making progress, and they're not open to making changes, then perhaps, you know, maybe that's a sign you may want to look for someone else that's going to be more in line with um, listening to what's going on. Yeah, I think when you're working with any practitioner, it's always about a good partnership. And, you know, both of you have to be equally vested into getting well. And if you find you're working with a practitioner who's really very resistant, uh, they just don't seem on the same page. Again, you know, find someone who's willing to work with you, not against you. It just doesn't make it any easier when you have someone who's constantly fighting you and getting the lab testing, getting the diagnosis, getting the treatment. You know, this is your life. This is your health. And again, sometimes you have to be your own best advocate. Yeah, uh, but you do. Again, I would definitely, you know, ask for referrals, you know. Uh, you can go online. I mean, ILADS keeps a directory of doctors that have trained through them. That's the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. So they tend to be a lot more open-minded about Lyme diagnosis, and they know the right labs to do. Uh, and again, there's other lack practitioners like myself out there that you know have a slightly different approach on treating Lyme. But I think, you know, certainly in the United States, there are a lot of practitioners that are Lyme savvy and can really help you move forward. That's great. Dr. Ingalls, thank you so much for all of this information. This has been so educational and I know that so many people are going to really learn and take a lot away from this. So I really, really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on the show. In Kim's case, Lyme was the underlying cause of her mystery symptoms. Now, Kim lives in New York City and actually doesn't like the outdoors. She's never been camping. She doesn't hike. So it's important to know that while ticks do carry Lyme, and that's one way to get it, there are other ways that Lyme can spread, and we have to be mindful of this. And I'm not saying this to scare anyone in any way, but rather to educate you about the potentials so that if you're experiencing strange symptoms and no one can explain them, this is an area that you can look into. I'll tell you more about what we did for Kim in just a second. But first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, Dr. Darren Ingalls, please visit healthmysterysolve.com and go to episode number 18. There you'll find all the detailed show notes so you can reference everything we talked about, including the best labs for Lyme and all of the other resources we discussed. And for Kim, I sent her to a local Lyme specialist. Now, this was last year before I knew Dr. Ingalls. Otherwise, I would have sent her to his clinic. And when she saw this doctor, after running a Lyme panel, she did in fact test positive for Lyme antibodies and several co-infections. So her approach was a combination one. The Lyme specialist worked with antibiotics while I worked with her on rebalancing her body to fight inflammation and calm down the immune response. We looked at underlying gut infections, which she had several, addressed leaky gut, removed her food sensitivities, and refilled many vitamins and minerals that she was deficient in. We also worked on her liver and gallbladder to make sure she was eliminating and detoxifying well to prevent the infections from harboring for longer than they needed to and to prevent the potential damage that antibiotics can cause. After three months on both protocols, she started to feel better and was able to come off antibiotics. 
we continued to support her system from all angles, focusing a lot on her stress response and the adrenal glands and balancing her thyroid, which was actually off due to the Lyme. We used a few antimicrobial herbs as well, such as artemisinin, for continued support. And after three months, she was, as she puts in her own words, completely back to normal. I now see Kim every few months to check in and remind her to keep her stress in check and continue on her maintenance nutrients to make sure her immune system is supported and her inflammation stays low so that she continues to feel well. She was so happy to be feeling better and that we got to the bottom of this as quickly as we did. She was also thrilled that she only needed three months of antibiotics and will continue to support her system with natural means to keep everything in check. If Kim sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you subscribe to this podcast because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. When it comes to solving your health issues, please don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.